2: Coming at you
0: So today's generation of investors, well, they're kind of sort of looking for a bit of a high from PepsiCo today. They didn't really get it. Shares of PepsiCo are trading lower after the CFO says the company has no cannabis plans. Let's get into what the company had to say. Let's get into the quarter. Let's get into it with Craig Giamona, consumer reporter at Bloomberg News in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Great to have you here with us. Thank you. Hey, before we do this, we've got um, some sound actually um, from Jonathan Farrow's interview uh, with with the PepsiCo CFO, Hugh Johnston, uh, earlier on Bloomberg Television. Let's listen to that first.
3: We saw a turnaround in, in the business getting back to growth, grew 2.5% on the revenue line. Uh, profits were down, driven by two things. Uh, first and foremost, advertising and marketing expense was up. Uh, frankly, we we were responding to increases in, in competitive levels of spending uh, and felt we needed to, to increase advertising in order to, to be competitive, uh, particularly in the big brands, Gatorade and Mountain Dew. and and Pepsi. Uh, And then in addition to that, a bit of inflation uh, from two places, one aluminum uh, and second transport costs. This is primarily the the driver wages that that we use as a result of moving product around on common carriers. Uh, in response to that, you'll see us, and we have already taken pricing up in the, for- in the fourth quarter, beginning in September, uh, which should improve the profit outlook for that business going forward. This was a, a remarkably good quarter. Uh, I would say that the-, the overlaps in the fourth quarter get a little bit tougher, uh, but we did increase our revenue guidance today because we are feeling confidence that, in fact, we're, we're getting the North America beverage business back on track, and it- it's a big piece of the overall revenue. Uh, the balance of the company, the revenue growth is strong and has continued to be strong quarter after quarter, whether it's uh, international at 9%. Uh, Frito-Lay is the most consistent consumer product company out there and continues to perform revenue at, at a very strong level. So we, we do feel good about sustaining the North American beverage turnaround.
0: All right, that was PepsiCo's CFO Hugh Johnson earlier on Bloomberg Television.
1: And Craig Giamona, as Carol said, with us in the studio. You were listening to that interview. You covered the earnings. you follow this company and the whole industry closely. Craig, shares are down. What did investors hear or not hear that they wanted to?
4: Yeah, it was an interesting morning. You know, it was sort of a classic mixed report. I mean, they beat on profit, beat on revenue. The North American beverage unit, which is the key thing, returned to growth. But first of all, during the call and pre-market trading, the shares fell clearly when the CFO was asked by an analyst if they had plans to look at to get into cannabis, and he said no. He basically said the U.S. federal ban makes it very difficult and that we do not have any plans at this point to do that. And the shares took a dip right? You know, off of that news, which says something pretty interesting about where we are and where investors are with this whole space. Beverages are the place that you're seeing the company show up. There's a lot of thought that there's going to be a whole line of wellness beverages that use CBD. Even cannabis, THC could be an ingredient. So very interesting to see investors react negatively to Pepsi saying we don't have plans to do that.
0: Well, this is, of course, coming on the heels of Coca-Cola saying what?
4: Exactly right. Coca-Cola, you know, we broke the story not too long ago saying that Coke was looking specifically at CBD, the non-psychoactive piece of the plant for wellness drinks. So investors clearly, you know, concerned that Pepsi would sort of rule it out. Well, and
1: their shares are down a bit while Coke's have been up. That's right. Uh, marginally. Yep. Um, so we mentioned the, the cannabis aspect, On the beverage side, who has the upper hand at this point?
4: Coke. Coke has done better with the beverages. Of course, you have to remember with Pepsi that they have Frito-Lay. And Mm Frito-Lay is absolutely a powerhouse. In that clip that we heard, the CFO refers to it as the best packaged food company out there. That's not much of a stretch. I mean, as we've seen center of the grocery store get decimated, the Campbell's and Kellogg's and General Mills of the world, salty chips have just been very, very strong. They're
0: always at the end of the aisle, and I'm always picking up a bag. As they say, it it, it
1: ain't bragging if it's true.
0: and all, right exactly and all this stuff you
4: hear about the healthy consumer you know some of that's true at the same time Doritos Tostitos Ruffles Cheetos these things just are cash drivers year after year and and frito-lay has not lost market share the way other big food companies have
0: this is what i don't get this is what we've always liked about pepsico that they're not just exposed to beverages like a coca-cola but now all of a sudden because they're not saying we're getting into cannabis that's a problem
4: yeah it's interesting And look there's been calls to split it off there's always been that theory that was the old nelson peltz idea it's still it's been brought back to a certain extent indra you know who this is her final day as ceo of the company she steps down officially tomorrow she resisted that because they're, more than half their revenue now is from food. You know, when you put Quaker and Frito together, and is a powerhouse, so that's the thing that kind of props up the company. Coke has been better on beverages, but Pepsi now saying that Mountain Dew is back, Pepsi's back, but they're spending a lot on advertising, and that's hurting the profit in the North American Beverage Unit. The North American Beverage Unit returned to growth on the sales side, profit down 14%. That's tariffs on aluminum, that's more spending on marketing and right. higher transportation costs.
1: And so how much of this is a, how much, Is Pepsi, Craig, sort of a bellwether of any sort in terms of consumer tastes and kind of what they're buying, what they're not buying? I mean, they have such a broad portfolio, as as you just described.
4: They do. And I think the thing that, you know, we find interesting about it is that on the one hand, you see the aversion to sugar. You see the consumers moving away from sugary soda towards other types of drinks, whether it's coffee. They talked about their Starbucks partnership being strong in the quarter. But then on the other hand, you see how fickle the U.S. consumer is. Because, again, salty salty chips, these are not healthy products. I'm sorry. You know, chips are just not a health food. But people love them, like I said. And it's not um, – it's not organic, non-GMO Tostitos. It's just regular Cool Ranch Doritos right. that are doing well. So it's a window into, I think, how difficult the consumer is. And it's part of the big reason why the big food and beverage companies have had so much trouble the last five or ten years. What's
0: still the most important markets? Is it the North American markets? Is it overseas?
4: They're very strong internationally. They did well over there. I mean, it still seems like it trades off North America. That's where I think, as far as the bellwether for that company is, the North American beverage unit still the key thing. Part of that is because people just take for granted how good Frito is, but it does feel like North America... America is still the key place, and that's where the new CEO is going to have to focus. I gotta
0: say, I love a Frito.
4: Oh yeah, Cheetos, Doritos, I mean, absolutely.
1: Cheetos. What's not to love? I mean, except <laughs> that they're not especially good for you. Anyway, Craig Yamona Bloomberg News Consumer Reporter, covering all things consumer, soda, booze, cannabis, whatever you need. Thanks so much for joining us. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week on Bloomberg Radio. It's Jazzy introduction. We get into a discussion of entrepreneurship. It really is sort of the cornerstone of a lot of what we talk about in this country, candidly, and certainly in the pages of Bloomberg Business Week. You get it. it. Goodbye every- to you, right? I, I get it. Okay, I get it. Goodbye to you. Goodbye <laughs> to you, because the entrepreneurs were saying like you're no longer welcome here in some Just ways. Just making sure. All right. Olivia Carvel is here. She is a tech reporter here at Bloomberg. Great story uh, in Business Week this week. It's already out on the terminal and at uh, Bloomberg.com. And it is about basically entrepreneurs being told yeah we're not so sure we want you for an entrepreneur in this country how did you find out about this olivia and welcome
2: Well, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Um, As you can probably tell from my accent, I'm not from here. I'm a New Zealander. So as I joined the technology team here in New York with Bloomberg, I thought it was really interesting looking at ways in which smaller countries like New Zealand were trying to attract technology talent. And that led me to what the U.S. is doing right now in terms of trying to push technology talent out the door or essentially saying you're not welcome here anymore. Or closing
1: the door when they're trying to get in.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Essentially, so I was kind of looking mainly at what's occurring in the US at the moment in terms of um, how foreign tech entrepreneurs were getting into the country and what was going to happen with the Trump administration rescinding on this international entrepreneur rule, which is effectively like a startup visa, allowing. Tech entrepreneurs to come into the country and found their own companies rather than historically where they've come into the US under the H 1B visa, which requires you to be sponsored by another company. This meant they could come in and actually found their own company. And by eliminating that visa, that's kind of cutting down their entry into the US for these foreign entrepreneurs and they're turning elsewhere and as they turn elsewhere you've got this kind of aggressive global race for the top tech talent occurring.
0: Right, so you have Vancouver, China, Israel, Germany, Estonia, New Zealand, all coming up with uh, new programs to open their doors to entrepreneurs.
2: Exactly, and these countries are not only just opening their doors, they're rolling out the red carpet in some sense. You've got some countries offering six-day visa application processing times, which is incredibly short. That's less than a week. You have other countries offering low-interest loans. You have streamlined processes to green cards or permanent residency. Israel is actually throwing in the mix $20,000 relocation bonuses with local language classes, free accountants, yearly flights home. That was one of the
1: things that I really liked. Like, <laughs> to go see
2: here, mom and dad yeah, kind of thing. thing. Exactly. And hey, I'm an immigrant, and if I was offered yearly flights home, like that's, that's, that's
1: pretty cool. That's pretty appealing. And so what's at stake here? I mean, what, one of the questions that obviously comes up is, is there an impact? Will there be an impact? How soon will we see it? Those are tough questions to answer. But you talk to a lot of people uh, for this story. What's the what's the sense here?
2: They are definitely well. That definitely is like the hardest question to answer. And depending on who you talk to, will depend on the response. You have some who are very alarmist and will say this is the worst thing that that could affect the US economy in decades. And then other people will say this won't really be that bad because the US has always been dominant in this particular area. I found it really interesting speaking to the individuals who have um, entered other countries through startup visa programs to ask them what their thoughts were, and I spoke to people who went into New Zealand, into Canada, into Estonia, and overwhelmingly the response I got was, the US was my first choice, it's where I want to be, I want to be in Silicon Valley, that's where I want to launch my company. But now that I can't, I'm going to have to go elsewhere. And they're going elsewhere at, you know, we're seeing increasing numbers of people applying to visa, startup visas in Estonia. We've got 160 founders based there now who have created jobs for 440 people. We have 130 startups in Canada. They've offered permanent residency to over 200 um, of those applicants. But one of the things i found probably the coolest in terms of reporting this was actually going to the immigration officials of these countries and saying to them you know why are you guys doing this now it seems really interesting that as soon as trump comes into office estonia for example the month of his inauguration estonia launches this pretty intense like startup visa advertising campaign saying you know come here we want you here and i said to the startup founder of like that program i said you know, did this have something to do with the anti-immigration rhetoric coming out of the U.S.? Is that why you're doing this now? And his response was, absolutely. But but I'm curious, too, though, that this
0: was in an Obama program, correct? Obama administration program. I mean, before that program, entrepreneurs were coming in. Should we assume by this program going away that entrepreneurs are just going to stop coming in or like do you know what i'm saying yeah and we well, only
1: have 20 seconds to answer this very sorry. important question.
0: <laughs> maybe 30
2: well, h- historically it's really interesting <laughs> because they've come in under the h1b which means that you have to work for another company right. until you get your green card and can launch your own so uh, the obama administration wanted to create that program kind of like a
0: fast track way
2: to fast track to get them in here to say we want you come
0: oh Amazing. unbelievable um great story Thank great, you. great, great story, and I'm glad you could come by and swing by the studio and talk to us about it. Olivia Carval, uh, technology reporter at Bloomberg News, in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker studio. I didn't say your last name right. Say it for me, Carval. Carval. <laughs> Thanks for
2: having me. She can't.
1: You just can't say it as well. She I know. Can. It's just Such a
2: like New York. All
1: right. So. It's always a treat when we've talked to somebody on the phone and then they find themselves in New York, or in the case of Kara Murphy, back in New York. She spent a lot of her career here. Uh, She's in Dallas now, but visiting us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers studio. Kara, welcome. You are the CIO of United Capital Financial Advisors, more than $23 billion in assets under management. And we are talking before we came on air. There's so much to sort of like sink your teeth into in this market from a news perspective right now. Let's start with leadership because yesterday was just, to use a technical term, sort of a banana's day. As like all these CEOs were right. kind of coming and going. As an investor, how do you think about that? So Indra Nui, you know, moving on. Obviously, you know, the CEO of uh, GE getting ousted. How do you make sense of it all?
5: Well, thanks so much for having me back here. And I just got to say, the studio's gorgeous. Thank you. Radio doesn't do it justice. So thank you for having me. And and you're right. Like, how interesting to have Indra Nooyi and then Gallagher juxtaposed at the same time. I really think in corporate America today, time is probably the most undervalued asset. So you think about Nooyi, 12 years in the CEO role. I mean, that's really a tremendous run. But then think about over that time period, how she transitioned the business. She really went through a number of different big challenges. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a transitioning towards a more more green, more healthy, more environmental-friendly business. Um, and then Gallagher, who inherited an incredibly complex, large business that was already under a lot of pressure wasn't even given a year to really figure it out I don't know who could have come in and really made that much of a difference for GE in a really short time period now I know the stock is up today so clearly the market's liking it today right but I really feel like in general we just don't give leadership teams enough time to really do what they need to particularly in very complex well, businesses well who do you fall
0: like because sometimes I've pointed the finger at kind of the business news environment in that we become you know headline focused day-to-day focused quarter to quarter focused do you blame like what is it what's where do you where do you lie the blame
5: I think it's the whole cycle, right? Because you need people to buy and sell stocks to react to that news, right? right? So, I mean, we're definitely-
0: transparency.
5: And I think it's very important. You know, we can look at other regions of the world that don't report on a quarterly basis. And I don't know that that's great too, to have to wait a whole 12 months to understand what's happening in a business. But I think also we need to constantly be reminded that it's important to look at those long-term figures But it's so tempting to trade on a quarter or on an earnings report. Um, And so ultimately, it's the investors who are making the buy and sell decisions. And they need sometimes to be able to
0: just set back and reflect. What do you think is not happening by not giving CEOs more time to do things? What, what what are we missing out as an economy, as a marketplace, as a corporate marketplace? So
5: innovation is a really big deal. So when you think about having to invest in a project that's not going to necessarily see the light of day for months, quarters, maybe years, those are the types of really transformative innovation that we need to be able to invest in that we can't if we're only focused on quarterly earnings.
1: All right. So I want to take you to another headline that's really, again, captured our attention today, which was Amazon coming out and saying they're going to raise the minimum wage at their company. I mean, essentially, Jeff Bezos, it feels like sort of acceding to some pressure that he's felt um, politically and obviously from, you know, workers and, and others. How big of a deal is that? What does it tell us about the market? What does it tell us about sort of wages and jobs in this country?
5: Well, first of all, good for those workers, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, they're going to get a nice pay increase, and it's those workers who have seen the least wage increases throughout this whole cycle. So, if anybody has kind of been waiting for that pop, it's those types of workers. I also think Amazon is not necessarily making a political statement by this, but the fact is, the labor market's really, really tight. They're having trouble attracting workers. So, you know, there is a positive knock-on effect where, as people see more, uh, see higher paychecks, they have more coins in their pocket. They're going to go out to dinner more. They're going to to buy more cars, so that's all positive. Now, the other side of that coin is that mm-hmm. it stokes wage inflation, and wage inflation is a much tougher beast to tame than, say, energy inflation. So we're going to just have, the Fed's going to be watching this really closely to see how much this starts stokes wage inflation overall.
0: I find this really kind of fascinating that here we have, I feel like, talking about, we need to see increases in wages. We've been talking about this for years already, and now you're already talking about the point where we might have wage inflation I know. Concern. So, I mean, does it really happen that fast? No, it doesn't. Okay. It
5: doesn't. And and you know, we had most of this cycle where wages were not increasing at all, or very very little. Right. So, only in the last year or so have we started to see that pick up. We've also started to see like the type of worker um, really broaden out in terms of who is feeling that wage increase. So, I don't think we're at a point now where it's worrisome. But you can, as I said, it's a tougher beast to tame. So, once it starts going, it's a lot harder to put a lid on. So I don't think we're anywhere in danger territory. We're just moving more in that direction.
1: So I got to ask you, I mean, and and I say this as someone who is not from New York originally, that we find ourselves very much in a bubble uh, here in New York. You've recently relocated right. to like a real place this place is not super uh super Wait, what are real what do you say? It's not a real place. Come on. New York we get a little I,
0: I don't know I don't know subway if, feels awfully real. I don't
1: know if you know this Carol but people in New York can be a little focused on what's right in front of them.
5: So Carol I'm going to start saying y'all now. I, 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 go for it. Y'all is welcome here.
1: Um but what do you see, you know, what's different uh from your seat in Dallas, especially as you come back here, you think about the markets because we are in. In this like sort of multi-America at this point.
5: It is very different. And I, and I think that, that type of worker that we're talking about, it's a very different experience. So workers at the high end of the spectrum, they're higher paid, you know, they tend to be more educated. They also own more stock. So life's been pretty good from, you know, late 2009 on. It's kind of been straight up. But then other workers who are living outside the major metropolitan areas who are more on hourly paychecks, less educated, less invested in the stock market, it took a lot longer for them to start feeling this rebound. Now it's coming and, and, and mm-hmm. like the last couple of years have been different. But I think you're right in that the experience throughout you know, throughout this economic cycle has been very different depending on where on that spectrum you are.
0: So does that mean because there are still a lot of folks that haven't partaked in The kind of the comeback of the economic cycle that that means that they ultimately will, and that stretches the cycle even further.
5: That's a great question. And it's very possible. I I think with stretching this cycle more than anything are the massive tax cuts that we got for corporations earlier this year. So you know, you had companies in the first quarter of this year who got a 9% earnings boost in in perpetuity, right? Just Mm -hmm. with the slash of a pen. Um, And they're still finding ways to really invest that extra cash. So we're seeing them hire more workers. We're seeing them invest in capital projects, buy back stock dividends. And those are all really great things for the stock market. But they're also things that really, elongate that economic cycle
1: Kara Murphy what a treat to have you here with us cool you are Chief Investment Officer United Capital Financial Advisors
2: Johnny Angel, how I love him. He's got yes time to
0: I bring can. in our John Ehrlichman he I is- love all the Johnny songs <laughs> I don't even know what to say all that. He's an angel. He's a John. He is an angel. He (laughs) He is an angel. He's he's our Johnny Angel. John Ehrlichman, you are anchor with BNN Bloomberg's The Open, correspondent for CTV National News. On the phone from Toronto, you're just an all-around great guy. Can we just say that, John?
6: Oh, shucks.
0: <laughs> Perfect. God. Hey, listen, um, one of our most read stories, we talked about it a little bit uh, earlier, actually I think a, a couple segments ago, just about what Jeff Bezos is doing. He kind of blinked, and he's got uh, some plans that he announced today to raise the minimum wage for all Amazon employees in the U.S. and also in the U.K. You're following this. What are you hearing about this news and development out of Amazon and Jeff Bezos? Well, I think weeks
6: ago when amazon's market cap first to a trillion dollars carol we, we were talking about what can't amazon do uh there, there's there's the challenge in controlling a message when you get that big and jeff bezos i mean this is one of those stories that is absolutely so incredible um an idea that turns into one of the most dominant companies on the planet and jeff bezos own net worth now an astonishing 165 billion dollars but when you have a growing workforce not just in the united states but around the world where i mean if we look at the and bloomberg highlighted this today in in one of the stories the median income of employees around 29 thousand dollars a year and the company's continued need to Try to explain what Amazon is in a world where it's having a, a vast impact on not just making our lives easier as consumers, but disrupting so many industries and politicians like uh, Bernie Sanders, who have been all over the company. They just made a choice. Mm. They made a choice to uh, try to have more ownership of this um, this subject. So, I mean, I think as as important
0: as... So it's political thing. or it's a company doing good?
6: Well, uh, I mean, the the fact that they want to now lobby um, at a federal level in Washington to raise the the minimum wage, the fact that Jeff Bezos himself spends a lot more time in Washington. We don't know where that uh, HQ2, that second headquarters, will be located, but a lot of people have been uh, placing their bets that that will be uh, located in uh, the D.C. area. Obviously, Jeff Bezos himself owns... Uh, the Washington Post and I mean this the subject of Amazon's disruptions not going away I mean you know the, the idea that they're gonna open um, hundreds maybe thousands of those Amazon go stores that are right. have no cashier people are this is an exciting time and it's also a time where people feel uh, displaced by automation and they're gonna need to point the finger at somebody and Amazon's got a, a target on its back. So this is a calculated move by the company, to say the least.
1: And how much, John, do you think this may disrupt their competitors from a wage perspective and from an employment perspective?
6: That's a great question, Jason, because uh, one thing and I, uh, you know, I, I, I think what gets lost in this is that while Amazon has so many people uh, required in this process of getting you stuff quickly, uh, they've also invested so heavily in their own technology um, that um, it, it's hard to know longer term raising the minimum wage. Is, is that something that actually is going to increase their cost dramatically when they're actually – Employing a lot more robots in their business. Right. I was just looking, actually, at the, at the seasonal workers that they said they would hire this year. It's 100,000 people in the United States. I mean, it's an absolutely massive number. But uh, in the last two years, it was 120,000. Now, Amazon is—they're—they're they're a little protective of of their of sort of the the factors that go into that. But I think it's safe to say that um, Amazon continues to be able to do a lot of the packaging and shipping and moving of product uh, through technology. Um, And so if we're talking about technology, you know, you're not paying a robot minimum wage. You're not paying a robot anything. I'm just going to say, we're not going
0: back to horse and buggy. I mean, the point is, I mean, technology is more and more pervasive in our world. That's just the way it's going. If you're a publicly held company, you are... You have, you're beholden to your shareholders ultimately, right? And cutting costs, making your company grow profits, making it grow revenues. Uh, I'm just playing devil's advocate a little bit here, but I mean, it's, it's kind of interesting. And I I think there's a bigger story here about folks who cannot find work and maybe what is the government's responsibility to figure out what kind of jobs are needed and to help maybe in training or something. I don't know. It's a bigger macro global story and problem.
6: I think that's right. And the other thing we talked about was, you know, Jeff Bezos, at a certain point, he's starting to choose um, the path of what he wants to be remembered for. I mean, Bill Gates, you know, we'd be having a different conversation around who's the richest person in the world if Bill Gates, for the last decade plus, had not been giving away his net worth as part of his philanthropic efforts. Um, Does Jeff Bezos even want to be the richest person in the world? Maybe on some levels it makes him uncomfortable, but I think that... Uh, Social responsibility is such an important part of uh, a company's DNA today. It's not just about how much money you make on the bottom line, And, and Amazon seems to be at that crossroads.
1: Great stuff. John Erlingman, anchor, BNN Bloomberg's The Open, and also, of course, correspondent for CTV National and News. And can I
0: just say, I believe in social responsibility, but you know what I mean? It's that, I mean, technology's here. So yeah. we,
1: well, it's not going back. It's also a reminder, I think, of how massively important this guy and this company is yeah. in the broader uh, global economy. Pretty incredible. I'm my car. Is the
6: drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg
5: Radio.
0: Yes, indeed. Time for the drive to the close. 12 minutes left in today's trading session. Back with us is Luca Paolini, chief strategist at Pictet Asset Management. They've got roughly $185 billion in assets under management based in London uh, in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studio on this Tuesday. Great to have you here with Jason and myself. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um.
1: He's overwhelmed by the beautiful studio.
0: It's fantastic. And the working It's printer. kind of cool, right?
7: It's, I think it's great, yeah.
0: Me too. It's nice. That you can kind of see each other. Yeah. There's light. Yeah. Um, when you look out at the market environment, what are the stories? I love that you know, you're know you based in London and have, I would presume, a more global perspective <laughs> to some extent. Um, what are the stories that you're most focusing on?
7: I think the one that everybody's actually looking is this kind of i would say almost unbelievable our performance of the us markets not only in the last few months but actually in the last 5 years you know the s and is up almost 80% emerging markets are flat uh, and everybody's asking actually how much this kind of gap of this g- can continue uh, and this i would say probably is the most is what i have been asked all the time by by our clients and our view is that actually we're not too far away from a turning point uh, is always difficult to identify turning point we're not too far away from that
0: i hate to burst your bubble but i've heard that a lot over the last couple of years in the u.s market that we're at a turning point what is it that you see specifically that says I think okay
7: we're not calling for the end of the bull market um what we are calling here is that This kind of period of significant outperformance in the U.S. is coming to an end Mm. because the dollar is overvalued, because the earnings expectations in the U.S. are significantly overblown. And if you look at the expectations for for the next five years, uh, well, earnings will end up 50% above trend. We've never seen anything like that in the past 50 years. So I think there is an excess of optimism about the U.S., which I think is partly justified, but I think has gone too far, and this would be actually the reason why I think this gap between U.S. and the rest will close. Not because the U.S. Will, will collapse, but because the rest of the world will catch up with the Relative U.S. Relative
0: performance.
1: And the rest of the world, is that all of the rest of the world? Is it mostly emerging markets? Is it mostly more developed markets? Is it Europe or Asia? Where is it?
7: I think I would love to say Europe, but actually now we think that the the potential is more in emerging markets mm-hmm. because you have seen a significant... Obviously, sell off in emerging markets pretty much everywhere uh, it 's not only Argentina and Turkey. if you look at china it 's the same thing uh, mainly because uh, of expectations of of a fat tightening strong dollar. Pray wars, some kind of weakness in the data. And obviously, the, the noise from Argentina and Turkey hasn't really helped. The point is that we are in a situation where valuation is becoming b- is very attractive, not only for, for especially on, on the currency, by the way. On mm-hmm. our models, we have a 25% undervaluation. Out of emerging markets. Margins and earnings are actually below trend, so there is upside. And I think if you look at growth overall in emerging markets, it's actually not bad. We tend to focus on South Africa or Argentina and Turkey, but if you look elsewhere, growth is actually pretty solid. So we feel that we are actually just about to see the beginning of a rally, at least a relative performance of emerging markets. So
0: it's, a, it's kind of just basic fundamental analysis, right? Looking at the markets and just seeing the run-up that we've seen in the U.S. and the valuations get higher. It's not like, as you said, the U.S. coming undone, but you can look elsewhere where the fundamentals, whether it's economic growth or the lower valuations, it just kind of makes sense.
7: Yes, I think I think you know it, it, it would be very easy to follow the trend. And actually in the last few years has been, the right, the right decision. Uh, you buy U.S. stocks, you buy tech, and, and it's easy. At some point, though, this trend will change. And obviously, the question is, what is the catalyst? The most obvious catalyst for me is the fact that the U.S. or U.S. growth will start to disappoint, not because growth is weak, just because expectations are too high. If you look at a simple economic confidence in the U.S., if you look at uh, property, if you look at investor confidence, CEO is an all-time high. And I think that's not sustainable, and so that's why we feel that we're just a potential Close to a turning point, so do you get a little defensive uh, in your picks here
1: in the u s then, and if so, where do
7: you go? Well, we have been reducing our cyclical exposure in the last few months, and actually, if you look globally, um, defensives have outperformed since June. Mm. Um, so I think that's already a, a change that we see in the sector performance, which I think is, is very important. Um, we like especially health because we feel there's a true defensive sector. It's not really exposed to the trade wars. And even if we don't believe that data will continue to rise, it's still a hedge in case that data will continue to rise. And so we, we feel that it's not the time to be fully defensive. But I think to start allocating more into defensive, I think it's, it's, now is the right time. And
1: what does defensive look like to you? What, what are some sectors people should be thinking about?
7: As I said, the healthcare is the obvious one. Yep. Uh, but I have to say that also when you look at the uh, an, and a global multi-asset portfolios, even treasuries look actually for us quite interesting as, oh. as, as a defensive play. And then you have gold. I know uh, it, it doesn't look particularly um, attractive now in a way. But, you know, if you feel that we are in a situation where growth will actually weaken a bit, inflation will pick up. You know, you may actually start building some exposure in gold for the long term, and I think I think that's what we are doing as well.
0: Our Dave Wilson, actually his chart of the day, was taking a look um, at gold mining stocks specifically, right. and did a ratio between the FTSE Gold Mines Index yeah. um, and the S&P 500, and the indicator dropped last month to its lowest reading in more yes. than 25 years. Dave says, you know, whether or not you buy into that relationship, would you hit something that's at such a significant low that potentially maybe there's something there from an investment perspective?
7: I think gold, gold mining stocks is one, but I think mining in general could be interesting from a tactical perspective because the mining stocks are very exposed to the dollar. So if you have a weaker dollar, they will benefit. If you have fiscal stimulus in China, you will benefit. And this is a sector that is actually not affected by technological uh, disruptions. It's basically an oligopolistic market, strong pricing power, and is very dependent Depending on what's going on in China. So I think I think this could be an interesting sector in the well, short term.
1: And I wonder, a hedge against trade wars the, to, to some extent and sort of the impact of trade? Or it's very, it's very trade?
7: difficult to, in a way, we, we, our base case scenario is that we are probably seeing the worst in terms of noise, at least, for, for trade wars. I think oh. I, can, I cannot rule out, nobody can, that we are going to get a 25% tariffs on all Chinese exports next year. But I think, reading between the lines, I feel there is some kind of a... We, uh, there is the, the U.S. administration is ready to compromise, uh, the Chinese too. I feel that this tension will not go away, but will not get worse. And in finance, the, mo- the only thing that matters is the momentum. So I think that we may have hit... The, the, the bottom in a way or, or the peak in, in terms of trade tension and so it's um, I don't think it's uh, I think the worst is behind us in a way
0: Where do you think we just got about 30 seconds Luca where do you think the next big risk comes for investors within the global financial markets is it uh, emerging markets is it uh, Italy where is it just got about 20 seconds
7: No I don't think is Italy I think it's too small to count I don't think it's emerging market I think it's going to be the US because the risk mm. is where you don't expect the risk to, to happen and I think, uh, you know, and we we believe that this bull market will continue for another year probably. But I think it's the U.S. potential peaking credit uh, in in, in margins. I think this will be probably something you have to look at.
0: Luca Pialini, he's chief strategist at Pictet Asset Management based in London in our Bloomberg Interactive Brokers
1: studio today. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.